Hello, everyone. This is a condensed version of a podcast that Sam Harris did on his website, which is samharris.org. And the name of his podcast is Making Sense. And the name of this particular episode is Can We Pull Back from the Brink? And what you're listening to is a condensed version of that podcast. There's a link to the full podcast as well as a transcription to that podcast below. So please check that out. And again, we did this uh, condensation to cover just the points within the podcast that we comment on in our podcast, which is also on this page on unkview.com. Thanks so much and enjoy. And I'm especially worried that it has become so difficult to talk about this, right? I'm just trying to have conversations. I'm just trying to figure these things out in real time with other people. And there is no question that conversation itself has become dangerous. And think about the politics of this. Endless imagery of people burning and looting independent businesses that were struggling to survive during this pandemic and seeing the owners of these businesses beaten by mobs cannot be good for the cause of social justice. Looting and burning businesses and assaulting their owners isn't social justice. It isn't even social protest. It's crime. And having imagery of these crimes that highlight black involvement circulate endlessly on Fox News and on social media cannot be good for the black community. However, it seems to me that most protesters are seeing this moment almost exclusively through the lens of identity politics, and racial identity politics in particular. And some of them are even celebrating the breakdown of law and order, or at least remaining non-judgmental about it. And you could see in the early days of this protest, news anchors take that line on CNN, for instance talking about the history of social protests, sometimes it has to be violent, right? What, do you think all these protests need to be nonviolent? I mean, those words came out of Chris Cuomo's mouth and Don Lemon's mouth. Many people have been circulating a half-quote from Martin Luther King Jr. about riots being the language of the unheard. They're leaving out the part where he made it clear that he believed that riots harmed the cause of the black community and help the cause of racists. But if you think a society without cops is a society you would want to live in, you have lost your mind. Giving a monopoly on violence to the state is just about the best thing we have ever done as a species. It ranks right up there with keeping our shit out of our food. Having a police force that can deter crime and solve crimes when they occur, and deliver violent criminals to a functioning justice system, is the necessary precondition for almost anything else we value in society. But the idea that any serious person thinks that we can do without the police, or that less trained and less vetted cops will magically be better than more trained and more vetted ones, this just reveals that our conversation on these topics has run completely off the rails 
But the idea that what we're witnessing now is a matter of the cops being over-resourced, that we've given them too much training, that we've made the job too attractive so that the people we're recruiting are of too high a quality, right? That doesn't make any sense. And what's been alarming here is that we're seeing prominent people in government, in the media, in Hollywood, in sports, speak and act as though the breakdown of civil society and of society itself is a form of progress. And any desire for law enforcement is itself a form of racist oppression. What's happening is that no one wants to say or even think anything that makes anyone uncomfortable. Certainly not anyone who has more wokeness points than they do. It's just become too dangerous. I mean, there are people being fired for tweeting all lives matter. Hashtag all lives matter in the current environment is being read as a naked declaration of white supremacy. Right? That's how weird this moment is. A soccer player on the LA Galaxy was fired for something his wife tweeted. The problem with the protests is that they are animated to a remarkable degree by confusion and misinformation. And the truth is, we have made considerable progress on the problem of racism in America. And this isn't 1920, and it isn't 1960. We had a two-term black president. We have black congressmen and women. We have black mayors and black chiefs of police. There are major cities, like Detroit and Atlanta, going on their fifth or sixth consecutive black mayor. Having more black people in positions of real power in what is still a majority white society is progress on the problem of racism. And the truth is, it might not even solve the problem we're talking about. I mean, when Freddie Gray was killed in Baltimore, virtually everyone who could have been held accountable for his death was black. And the only way to get answers to those questions is to have a dispassionate discussion about facts. And the problem with the social activism we're now seeing, what John McWhorter calls the new religion of anti-racism, is that it finds racism nearly everywhere, even where it manifestly does not exist. And this is incredibly damaging to the cause of achieving real equality in our society. It's almost impossible to exaggerate the evil and injustice of slavery and its aftermath. But it is possible to exaggerate how much racism currently exists at an Ivy League university, or in Silicon Valley, or at the Oscars. And those exaggerations are toxic. And perversely, they may produce more real racism. It seems to me that false claims of victimhood can diminish the social stature of any group, even a group that has a long history of real victimization. The imprecision here, the bad faith arguments, 
the double standards, the goalpost shifting, the idiotic opinion pieces in the New York Times, the defenestrations on social media, the general hysteria that the cult of wokeness has produced. I think this is all extremely harmful to civil society and to effective liberal politics and to the welfare of African Americans. But now I want to ask a few questions, and I want us to try to consider them dispassionately. And I really want you to watch your mind while you do this, because there are very likely a few tripwires installed there, and I'm about to hit some of them. So just do your best to remain calm. Does the killing of George Floyd prove that we have a problem of racism in the United States? Does it even suggest that we have a problem of racism in the United States? In other words, do we have reason to believe that had Floyd been white, he wouldn't have died in a similar way? Do the dozen or so other videos that have emerged in recent years of black men being killed by cops, do they prove or even suggest that there is an epidemic of lethal police violence directed especially at black men, and that this violence is motivated by racism. Now, most people seem to think that the answers to these questions are so obvious that even to pose them, as I just did, is obscene. And the answer is yes, and it's a yes that now needs to be shouted in the streets. The problem, however, is that if you take even five minutes to look at the data on crime and police violence? The answer really appears to be no, in every case. But in the last 25 years, violent crime has come down significantly in the U.S., and so has the police use of deadly force. And as you're about to see, the police use more deadly force against white people both in terms of absolute numbers and in terms of their contribution to crime and violence in our society. But the public perception is, of course, completely different. I mean, in a city like Los Angeles, 2019 was a 30-year low for police shootings. Think about that. Do the people who were protesting in Los Angeles, peacefully and violently, and do the people who are ransacking and burning businesses by the hundreds, in many cases businesses that will not return to their neighborhoods, do the people who cause so much damage to the city that certain neighborhoods will take years and probably decades to recover, do the celebrities who supported them and even bailed them out of jail, do any of these people know that 2019 was the 30-year low for police shootings in Los Angeles. If you care about justice, and you absolutely should, you should care about facts and the ability to discuss them openly. Justice requires contact with reality. So I'm going to speak in the language of facts now, insofar as we know them, all the while knowing that these facts run very much counter to most people's assumptions. Many of the things 
you think you know about crime and violence in our society are almost certainly wrong, and that should matter to you. So just take a moment to think this through with me. How many people are killed each year in America by cops? Now, if you don't know, guess. Right? See if you have any intuition for these numbers. Because your intuitions determine how you interpret horrific videos of the sort we saw coming out of Minneapolis. The answer for many years running is about 1,000. Okay, 1,000 people are killed by cops in America each year. There are about 50 to 60 million encounters between civilians and cops each year, and about 10 million arrests. That's down from a high of over 14 million arrests annually through the 90s. So of the 10 million occasions where a person attracts the attention of the police and the police decide to make an arrest, about 1,000 of those people die as a result. I'm sure a few people get killed when there's no arrest attempted, but that has to be a truly tiny number. So without knowing anything else about the situation, if the cops decide to arrest you, it is reasonable to think that your chance of dying is around 1 in 10,000. And among innocent people, and perhaps this is getting more common these days, a person might feel that resisting arrest is the right thing to do, ethically or politically, or perhaps as a matter of affirming his identity. After all, put yourself in his shoes. He did nothing wrong. Right? Why are the cops arresting him? I don't know if we have data on the numbers of people who resist arrest by race, but I can well imagine that if it's common for African Americans to believe that the only reason they have been singled out for arrest is due to racism on the part of the police, that could lead to greater levels of noncompliance, which seems very likely to lead to more unnecessary injury and death. In fact, the evidence we have suggests that black and Hispanic cops are more likely to shoot black and Hispanic suspects than white cops are. But it would surely change the perception of the community that racism is the likely explanation for police behavior, which itself might reduce conflict. But the truth is that even if we got rid of all the bad cops, which we absolutely should do, and there were only good people left, and we got all these good people the best possible training, and we gave them the best culture in which to think about their role in society, and we gave them the best methods for de-escalating potentially violent situations, which we absolutely must do. And we scrubbed all the dumb laws from our books so that when cops were required to enforce the law, they were only risking their lives and the lives of civilians for reasons that we deem just and necessary. So the war on drugs is obviously over. Even under these conditions of perfect progress, we are still guaranteed to have some number of cases each year where a cop kills a civilian in a way that is totally unjustified and therefore tragic. Every year, there will be some number of families who will be able to say that the cops killed their son or daughter or father or mother or brother or sister. And videos of these killings will occasionally surface and they will be horrific. This seems guaranteed to happen. So, while we need to make all these improvements, 
we still need to understand there are very likely always going to be videos of cops doing something inexplicable or inexplicably stupid that results in an innocent person's death or not so innocent person's death. And sometimes the cop will be white and the victim will be black. We have 10 million arrests each year. And we now live in a panopticon where practically everything is videotaped. Now I'm about to get further into the details of what we know about police violence, but I want to just put it to you now. If we're going to let the health of race relations in this country, or the relationship between the community and the police, depend on whether we ever see a terrible video of police misconduct again, the project of healing these wounds in our society is doomed. About a week into these protests, I heard Van Jones on CNN say, if we see one more video of a cop brutalizing a black man, this country could go over the edge. Now, he said this not as an indication of how dangerously inflamed people have become. He seemed to be saying it as an ultimatum to the police. With 10 million arrests each year, arrests that have to take place in the most highly armed society in the developed world, I hope you understand how unreasonable that ultimatum is. Now, if you watch that video, and again, fair warning, it's disturbing, but imagine how disturbing it would have been to our society if Tony Timpa had been black. If the only thing you changed about the video was the color of Timpa's skin, that video would have detonated like a nuclear bomb in our society, exactly as the George Floyd video did. As I said, these videos can be hard to interpret, even while seeming very easy to interpret. And these cases, whether they have associated video or not, are very different. The Michael Brown is reported to have punched a cop in the face and attempted to get his gun. As far as I know, there's no video of that encounter. But if true, that is an entirely different situation. If you're attacking a cop, trying to get his gun, that is a life and death struggle, almost by definition, for the cop. And in most cases, it will justify a lethal use of force. And honestly, it seems that no one within a thousand miles of Black Lives Matter is willing to make these distinctions. I've seen many videos of people getting arrested, and I've seen the outraged public reaction to what appears to be the inappropriate use of force by the cops. One overwhelming fact that comes through is that people, whatever the color of their skin, don't understand how to behave around cops so as to keep themselves safe. People have to stop resisting arrest. This may seem obvious, but judging from most of these videos and from the public reaction to them, this must be a totally arcane piece of information. When a cop wants to take you into custody, you don't get to decide whether or not you should be arrested. When a cop wants to take you into custody, for whatever reason, it's not a negotiation. And if you turn it into a wrestling match, you're very likely to get injured or killed. This is something that everyone really needs to understand. And it's something that Black Lives Matter should be teaching explicitly. 
If you put your hands on a cop, if you start wrestling with a cop, or grabbing him because he's arresting your friend, or pushing him, or striking him, or using your hands in a way that can possibly be interpreted as you're reaching for a gun, you are likely to get shot in the United States, right? whatever the color of your skin. As I said, when you're with a cop, there is always a gun out in the open, and any physical struggle has to be perceived by him as a fight for the gun. A cop doesn't know what you're going to do if you overpower him, so he has to assume the worst. And once things turn physical, they can't afford to give a person who is now assaulting a police officer the benefit of the doubt. And this is something that people seem totally confused about. If they see a video of someone fighting with a cop and punching him or her in the face, right, and the person's unarmed, many people think the cop should just punch back and that any use of deadly force at that point would be totally disproportionate. But that's not how violence works, right? It's not the cop's job to be the best bare-knuckled boxer on earth so that he doesn't have to use his gun. A cop can't risk getting repeatedly hit in the face and knocked out because there's always a gun in play. Right, so this is the cop's perception of the world, and it's a justifiable one, given the dynamics of human violence. It's not up to you to decide whether or not you should be arrested. I mean, does it matter that you know that you didn't do anything wrong? No. And how could that fact be effectively communicated in the moment by your not following police commands? I'm going to ask that again. How could the fact that you're innocent, that you're not a threat to the cop, that you're not about to suddenly attack him or produce a weapon of your own, how could those things be effectively communicated at the moment he's attempting to arrest you by your resisting arrest? And unless you call the cops yourself, you never really know what situation you're in. If I'm walking down the street, I don't know if a cop who's approaching me didn't just get a call that some guy who looks like Ben Stiller just committed an armed robbery. I mean, I know I didn't do anything. I know that I'm mystified as to why the cop is paying attention to me at that moment. But I don't know what's in the cop's head. The time to find out what's going on. The time to complain about racist cops. The time to scream at them and tell them they're all going to get fired for their stupidity and misconduct is after cooperating. At the police station. In the presence of a lawyer, preferably. But to not comply in the heat of the moment when a guy with a gun is issuing commands this raises your risk astronomically. And it's something that most people, it seems, just do not intuitively understand. The main problem with using individual cases where black men and women have been killed by cops to conclude that there's an epidemic of racist police violence in our society is that you can find nearly identical cases of white suspects being killed by cops. And there are actually more of them. In 2016, John McWhorter wrote a piece for Time magazine about this. And here's a snippet of what he wrote. Quote, The heart of the indignation over these murders is a conviction that racist bias plays a decisive part in these encounters. That has seemed plausible to me, and I've recently challenged those who disagree to present a list of white people killed within the past few years 
under circumstances similar to those that so enrage us in cases such as what happened to Tamir Rice, John Crawford, Walter Scott, Sam DeBose, and others. End quote. So McWhorter issued that challenge, as he said, and he was presented with the cases. But there's no song about these people admonishing us to say their names. And the list of white names is longer. And I don't know any of them, right, other than Tony Timpa. I know the black names. In addition to the ones I just read from McWhorter's article, I know the names of Eric Garner and Michael Brown and Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. And now, of course, I know the name of George Floyd. And I'm aware of many of the details of these cases where black men and women have been killed by cops. I know the name of Breonna Taylor. I can't name a single white person killed by cops in circumstances like these other than Timpa. And I just read McWhorter's article where he lists many of them. So this is also a distortion in the media, right? The media is not showing us videos of white people being killed by cops. Activists are not demanding that they do this, right? In terms of the story we're telling ourselves in the mainstream, we're not actually talking about the data on lethal police violence. So back to the data. Again, cops kill around 1,000 people every year in the United States. About 25% are black. About 50% are white. Those aren't the cases we're worried about. We're worried about the unjustified homicides. Now, some people will think these numbers still represent an outrageous injustice. After all, African Americans are only 13% of the population. So at most, they should be 13% of the victims of police violence, not 25%. And any departure from the baseline population must be due to racism. Okay, well, that sounds plausible, but consider a few more facts. Blacks are 13% of the population, but they commit at least 50% of the murders and other violent crimes. Now, if you have 13% of the population responsible for 50% of the murders, and in some cities committing two-thirds of all violent crime, what percent of police attention should it attract? I honestly don't know. But I'm pretty sure it's not just 13%. And given that the overwhelming majority of their victims are black, I'm pretty sure that most black people wouldn't set the dial at 13% either. And here we arrive somewhere near the core of the problem. The story of crime in America is overwhelmingly the story of black-on-black crime. It is also, in part, a story of black-on-white crime. But for more than a generation, it really has not been much of a story of white-on-black crime. The weekend these protests and riots were kicking off nationwide, when our entire country seemed to be tearing itself apart over a perceived epidemic of racist police violence against the black community. 92 people were shot and 27 killed in Chicago alone, right, one city. This is almost entirely a story of black men killing members of their own community. And this type of violence is far more representative 
of the kind of violence the black community needs to worry about. And ironically, it's clear that one remedy for this violence would be effective policing. Roland Fryer, the Harvard economist whose work I once discussed with Glenn Lowry on the podcast, he studied police encounters involving black and white suspects and the use of force. His paper is titled, and this is from 2016, An Empirical Analysis of Racial Differences in Police Use of Force. And Fryer is black, and he went into this research with the expectation that the data would confirm that there's an epidemic of lethal police violence directed against black men, especially. But he didn't find that. Well, again, it could be that blacks are less cooperative with the police. And if so, this would be worth understanding. A culture of resisting arrest would be a very bad thing to cultivate, given that the only response to such resistance is for the police to increase their use of force. But Fryer also found that black suspects are around 25% less likely to be shot than white suspects are. And in the most egregious situations, where an officer was not first attacked, but nevertheless fired his weapon at a suspect, the police seem more likely to do this when the suspect is white. But as far as I know, the best data we have suggests that for whatever reason, whites are more likely to be killed by cops once an arrest is attempted. In a more recent study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, by David Johnson and colleagues, found similar results. And given the data we have, it seems undeniable that more whites are killed by cops each year, again, both in absolute numbers and in proportion to their contributions to crime and violence in our society. Now, can you hear how these facts should be grinding in that well-oiled machine of woke outrage? And the streets are now filled with people who imagine, on the basis of seeing several horrific videos, that there is an epidemic of racist cops murdering African Americans. Look at what this belief is doing to our politics. And these videos will keep coming. And the truth is they could probably be matched two for one with videos of white people being killed by cops. What percentage of people protesting understand that the disparity runs this way. In light of the belief that the data run the other way, people are now quite happy to risk getting beaten and arrested by cops themselves, right? And to even loot and burn businesses. And most people and institutions are supporting this civil unrest from the sidelines because they too imagine that cops are killing black people in extraordinary numbers. This is now called the Ferguson effect, right? And the police still answer 911 calls, but they don't investigate suspicious activity in the same way. They don't want to wind up on YouTube. And when they alter their behavior like this, homicides go up. And Fryer estimates that the effects of these few investigations translated into a thousand extra homicides and almost 40,000 more felonies over the next 24 months in the U.S. And of course, most of the victims of those crimes were black. Now, one shudders to imagine the size of the Ferguson effect 
we're about to see nationwide. I'm sure the morale among cops has never been lower. I think it's almost guaranteed that cops by the thousands will be leaving the force. And it's going to be much more difficult to recruit good people to the police force. I mean, who's going to want to be a cop now? And why is all this happening now? Police killings of civilians have gone way down. And they are very rare events. They are one in 10,000 level events, if measured by arrests, and one in 50 to 60,000 level events, if measured by police encounters. And the number of unarmed people who are killed by cops is much smaller than that, right? Of the thousand people killed by cops last year, around 50 were unarmed. And again, there were more white people killed than black. And not all unarmed victims are innocent, right? Some get killed in the act of attacking the cops. Again, the data don't tell a clean story or the whole story. So we need to lower the temperature on this conversation and many other conversations and to understand what is actually happening in our society. But instead of doing this, we now have a whole generation of social activists who seem eager to play a game of chicken with the forces of chaos. I think what we're witnessing in our streets and on social media and even in the mainstream press is a version of mass hysteria. And the next horrific video of a black person being killed by cops won't be evidence to the contrary. And there will be another video, right? There are 10 million arrests every year. There will always be another video. The media have turned these videos into a form of political pornography. And this has deranged us. We're now unable to speak or even think about facts. The media has truly been poisoned by bad incentives in this regard, and social media doubly so. Now, in the mainstream of this protest movement, it's very common to hear that the only problem with what's happening in our streets, apart from what the cops are doing, is that some criminal behavior at the margins, a little bit of looting, a little bit of violence, has distracted us from an otherwise necessary and inspiring response to an epidemic of racism. And most people in the media have taken exactly this position, right? People like Anderson Cooper on CNN, or the editorial page of the New York Times, or public figures like President Obama or Vice President Biden. And the most prominent liberal voices in our society believe that the protests themselves make perfect moral sense and perfect political sense. And that movements like Black Lives Matter are guaranteed to be on the right side of history. I mean, how could anyone who's concerned about inequality and injustice in our society see things any other way? I mean, how could anyone who isn't himself racist not support Black Lives Matter? But of course, there is a difference between slogans and reality. There's a difference between the branding of a movement and its actual aims. And this can be genuinely confusing. And that's why propaganda works, right? I mean, for instance, many people assume 
that there's nothing wrong with Antifa. Because this group of total maniacs has branded itself as anti-fascist. Right, what could be wrong with being anti-fascist? Are you pro-fascism? There's a similar problem with Black Lives Matter. And the wider issue is that we are in the midst of a moral panic. Right? And it's been made possible by a near total unwillingness, particularly on the left, among people who value their careers and their livelihoods and their reputations and have a legitimate fear of being hounded into oblivion online. So this is nearly everyone left of center politically. People are simply refusing to speak honestly about the problem of race and racism in America. And we're making ourselves sick, right? We are damaging our society. And by protesting the wrong thing, even the slightly wrong thing, and unleashing an explosion of cynical criminality in the process, looting that doesn't even have a pretense of protest, the left is empowering Trump, whatever the polls currently show. But how are democratic calls to abolish the police going to play in half the country that just watched so many cities getting looted? But it's not at all clear that progress along these dimensions primarily entails us finding and eradicating more racism in our society. And just ask yourself, what would real progress on the problem of racism look like? What would utter progress look like? Well, here's what I think it would look like. More and more people, and ultimately all people, would care less and less, and ultimately not at all, about race. As I've said in various places, skin color would become like hair color in its political and moral significance, which is to say it would have none. For the purposes of this conversation, I have to assume that you agree with me about the goal here, which is to say you share the hope that there will come a time when the color of a person's skin really doesn't matter. What would that be like? Well, how many blondes got into Harvard this year? Does anyone know? What percentage of the police in San Diego are brunette? Do we have enough redheads in senior management in our Fortune 500 companies? No one is asking these questions, and there's a reason for that. No one cares. And we are right not to care. Imagine a world in which people cared about hair color to the degree that we currently care, or seem to care, or imagine that others care, or allege that they secretly care about skin color. Imagine a world in which discrimination by hair color was a thing, and it took centuries to overcome, and it remains a persistent source of private pain and public grievance throughout society even where it no longer exists. What an insane misuse of human energy that would be. What an absolute catastrophe. And finally, if you're on the left and you don't agree with that, if you don't agree with this vision of a post-racial future, please observe that the people who agree with you, the people who believe that there is no overcoming race, 
and that racial identity is indissoluble, and that skin color really matters and will always matter. These people are white supremacists and neo-Nazis and other total assholes. And these are also people I can't figure out how to talk to, much less persuade. How does racial difference become uninteresting? Can it become uninteresting by more and more people taking a greater interest in it? Can it become uninteresting by becoming a permanent political identity? Can it become uninteresting by having thousands of institutions whose funding, and therefore very survival, depends on it remaining interesting until the end of the world? Can it become less significant by being granted more and more significance? By becoming a fetish, a sacred object, ringed on all sides by taboos? Can race become less significant if you can lose your reputation and even your livelihood at any moment by saying one wrong word about it? Now, I think these questions answer themselves. To outgrow our obsession with racial difference, we have to outgrow our obsession with race. And you don't do that by maintaining your obsession with it. As I said, I think we're living in a very different time than Martin Luther King Jr. was. And what I see all around me is evidence of the fact that we're paying an intolerable price for confusion about racism and social justice generally, and the importance of identity generally. And this is happening in an environment where the path to success and power for historically disadvantaged groups isn't generally barred by white racists who won't vote for them, or hire them, or celebrate their achievements, or buy their products. And it isn't generally barred by laws and policies and norms that are unfair. Now, there is surely still some of that, but there must be less of it now than there ever was. The real burden on the black community is the continued legacy of inequality with respect to wealth and education and health and social order, levels of crime in particular, and the resulting levels of incarceration and single parent families. And it seems very unlikely that these disparities, whatever their origin in the past, can be solved by focusing on the problem of lingering racism, especially where it doesn't exist. And the current problem of police violence seems a perfect case in point. And yet now we're inundated with messages from every well-intentioned company and organization singing from the same book of hymns. I mean, Black Lives Matter is everywhere. Of course black lives matter, but the messaging of this movement around the reality of police violence is wrong, and it's creating a public hysteria. I don't think so. Now, I'll tell you the fear of the other that does seem warranted everywhere right now. It's the other who has rendered him or herself incapable of dialogue. It's the other who will not listen to reason, who has no interest in facts, who can't join a conversation that converges on the truth because he knows in advance 
what the truth must be. We have to pull back from the brink here. And all we have with which to do that is conversation. I mean, the only thing that makes conversation possible is an openness to evidence and arguments, a willingness to update one's view of the world when better reasons are given. And that is an ongoing process, not a place we ever finally arrive. 